Today, Bethlehem, for the powerful, the lowly, and the outsider. Welcome to Coffee with Creamer, where you get to sit down with our host, Dr. Barry Creamer, for a conversation about faith, life, and culture. Look at old ideas through a new lens, turn those culture wars on their head, and paint a picture of the way things could be. If you like your thinking deep and your coffee hot, pull up a chair. You're in the right place. As we approach Christmas, thought we'd look at a passage uh, familiar to all of us in the Christmas story, not from Luke this time, but from Matthew. It's the second chapter in Matthew, the entire chapter. Uh, And that chapter is actually comprised of five stories. I'm going to read them to you in order, and we'll just go through the first two and talk about a point from each of those and an observation to make from each of those, and then the last three. The last three kind of go together. They sort of do and sort of don't. Because what what happens in this chapter, before I get started on the actual content, I just want to point a couple of things out so you'll know kind of why I'm reading it the way I am. These five narratives in a row that take place in Matthew 2, you'll be familiar with all of them. It's the Christmas story, so there'll be no surprises. But there are three protagonists. You know what I mean, Herod is the main actor in a couple of the stories. And then the Magi, you know, that's the part of the story we're probably most familiar with. And then Joseph and what he has to do in fleeing the country and then returning to it. And so there are really, there are five narratives, but there are only three real stories that are fulfilled. Uh, they Because a couple of the stories are interrupted by a couple of the other stories. And so you have these smaller stories that comprise bigger tales. And so what it really ends up uh, being is a story about Herod that we want to understand, a story about the Magi we want to understand, and then three other stories, which basically comprise two stories that are comprised of, is comprised of two stories about Joseph surrounding the conclusion of Herod's story. That's what's going on. So what's interesting is you have these five narratives. The structures are all there. They're they're really well told. It's just nice, succinct, obvious structures so that it's easy to follow. That's important because it helps us say more objectively what the passage seems to be about because we're not just following what we're feeling while we're reading it, but able to point to actual markers in the text that say this is what it's about. And if you say, well, narrative structure shouldn't be one of those markers, fine with me, because they all end in the same way. They all end with a direct reference to Old Testament prophecy and and practically a quotation, a quotation in three of the, so here's what happens. This This is what I'm trying to point out. There are five narratives, but in reality, there are only four Old Testament prophecy references. You say, well, that sounds suspicious. It's not suspicious. It's a flag. It's like this thing begging to be noticed. And when we notice it, it actually does change the way we think about 
what I think is going on with the central part of the passage for most of us, which is the Magi. Most of us just love the, the wise men. They're coming to Bethlehem and they give the gifts and that's the part of the story we talk about. But all the years that I was growing up and most of the years since then that I've thought about this chapter and thought about how the wise men come to, 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 Beth, to Jerusalem and then to Bethlehem, it's sort of been a weird side story. Like, wow, well, you know, that's great that they came and they left their gifts and then they go away and we don't even hear from them again. They're just gone. And what's the point except that they just tipped, you know, the Messiah's hand so that Herod found out about him and ended up slaughtering all those innocent children, which he does. And then it's like, wow, it's really kind of unfortunate they showed up, isn't it? Or is it a good thing or bad? What's going on with those wise men? And they're not, they're not that. They're not an ancillary part of this story. They're so central to it, and yet so weird in the way they relate to everything else in the chapter. So what I want to do is just shed a light on that in this conversation about Matthew chapter 2. So instead of reading through the whole thing, because again, you're going to be familiar with the whole thing. There's Herod's story where he's afraid of being replaced, and so he interacts with the, his own scholars of, of Israel and then with the wise men to find out where Jesus is going to be born. And then there's the story of the wise men themselves and what they do finally ending up in Bethlehem offering their gifts to Jesus. And then Joseph is warned in a dream that he needs to leave because Herod is going to do something untoward toward the Messiah, toward Jesus. So he goes down to Egypt. Then Herod conducts the slaughter of the innocents. That's the fourth story. And then the last story, the fifth story, is Joseph coming back. Everything's okay. Come on back. And as soon as he gets back, everything's not okay. Uh, things are still a mess, which we'll talk about. Now, you, So you know how the chapter goes. That's the flow of the chapter. Now let's just take one of the stories at a time and talk about what seems most obvious. And these are all thematic. I mean, these, this is an opening chapter, one of the two opening chapters in the Gospel of Matthew. So we know he's setting up the themes for the whole book, which is the whole gospel. That's the point. So the, the point of the Christian gospel is apparent in the message of the Christmas story, and Matthew gives it to us in this chapter in particularly poignant fashion. So the first six verses, in the person of Herod, we see one of the things that Christmas is going to mean. So, and by Christmas, I mean the coming of the Messiah. I don't just mean Christmas celebrations, obviously, but I'm referring to it as Christmas. The Messiah coming means something, and it's revealed in what happens to Herod. So, verse 1, now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king. So, we'll talk about Herod the king in a moment, but Herod the king is king by the authority of the Romans, of course, and he's king as this sort of usurper of the genuine throne, which we recognize because Jesus is born where David was born. Herod's not born there. Herod's born in Idumea. He's from a completely different place. And he's got some Jewish heritage, and he pretends to be Jewish, but he's not truly Jewish. So anyway, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. So they see this sign in the heavens, which we'll come back to much more when we tell their story, and it's repeated for us in their part of the story. 
We've seen his sign in the east, and we've come to worship him. They see this sign in the heavens. They come. They want to worship the genuine king. Now, it doesn't take much to figure out that when they come to the throne room of Herod, who has come in from Idumea under the authority of the occupying Romans and taken over control of the land, and they say to that king, as if they have no sense of the gravity that this will have, but it's hard to believe that. I mean, they are magi. They should have some knowledge of this. But whatever, they walk right in and say, hey, you know, you're not really from these parts. Can you point us toward the the person who was born to be king here? That's, (laughs) you know, and the result is what you would expect in the third verse. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. Now, I mean, the thing about Herod is he's done all these things to make Jerusalem great again, right? He has built the temple for them. He has made everything about coming to Jerusalem significant again. People come from the nations to see the magnificence of the mound that he built up and the temple that he made so much greater than it was before and to practice in the sacrificial system and so on. It's it's a big deal, and he's done legitimately good things for the people of Israel during the time that he was reigning. At the same time, as he's gotten older and he's getting closer to his death at this point, he becomes really suspicious, conspiratorial, thinking everybody's out to get him. And now this person shows up, these people show up and say, "Uh, where's the real king? Well, of course, that converts into him thinking in terms of those conspiracies. And so when he'd got, so he wants to find out what's going on here. We hear a lot more about the conspiratorial nature of what he's thinking and then the actual evil that he's going to perpetrate below in the conclusion to his story later. The point, it's in the fourth story that we'll be reading overall. But in this first story, the point is simply he has found out, and what he's learned is what the scribes are about to tell. Now, he doesn't learn it, but what we learn and that he should have learned is what the scribes are about to tell him. Because these outsiders, the the magi, they come in and say, hey, where's the one who's going to be born king? So he turns to somebody who might know, legitimate scholars of the Old Testament. Uh, the people who were raised in Judaism and believe in it to some extent. They also believe in Herod and following him, but whatever. So when he'd gathered all the chief priests and the scribes, the people together, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And they said to him, why, we know this. And they go back and look at Micah 5, Micah 5, 2, a passage that's famous to all of us just because of this relationship. In Bethlehem of Judea, they answer because this is what's written in the prophet. And this is the first of those four instances where there's a direct appeal to prophecy in the Old Testament. This becomes really important as we're going through this chapter. That is these repeated prophecies, just like it says in the Old Testament in the prophets, right? But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, and he's quoting Micah 5 again. These scholars are quoting Micah 5. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not the least among the rulers of Judah, which is obviously what they thought of themselves. They're like Gideon, you know, well, who are we? I mean, we're just this tiny little village in the, among all the villages of Judea. Nobody would ever notice us. And Micah, long after David has been king, is saying, oh, you're not the least among the rulers of Judah because out of you 
shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Obviously, a reference back historically to how David emerged from there, but now to look forward to the Messiah who would come from David's line, and therefore from Bethlehem, who would be the ruler over the people of Israel. Most importantly here, and pairing with that idea that Bethlehem is so small, and yet out of it, God is going to raise up this great ruler, is the fact that the ruler that he will raise up will be the kind of ruler he's always said should be over Israel. Not some great, powerful person building an image for himself so that people 2,000 years later will call him Herod the Great. It's not about him becoming great. It's about him shepherding the people of Israel. And so just as he had said in Deuteronomy through Moses, just as he had taught us through the judges and all the bad examples that we had there, and just as he teaches us with all the bad kings that try to rule over Israel, he never wanted a king that was aggrandizing power for himself. He never wanted someone who could say, now I'm finally exalted above all the people. Instead, he wanted a ruler who would serve his people who would shepherd them, who would care for them, who would protect them, who would sacrifice on their behalf, a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. The point here is that when Herod, on his throne, hears that the Messiah might be coming, all he can think of is how to maintain his power, how to hold on to it. But God has always rejected the proud. This is, the, this is the idea conveyed not only in the Old Testament, but still in the New Testament, that when we're proud, when we're powerful, when we're holding all the cards, is when God is not going to be holding us up, is not going to be embracing what we're doing. In fact, in, in James, that's what's going on with all of the conflict between the people. In James 4, this is my obligatory reference to the book of James that I always give, in this case, from James 4, where he says, why are you opposing each other? It's because you've chosen the way that the world does things. But this is not what God wants. God wants you to submit yourselves. This is all, you know, sort of a massive paraphrase of James 4, 1 through 10. But in verse 7, it actually says, submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, he'll flee from you. Draw near to God, he'll draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, purify your hearts. Don't be double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Why? Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he will exalt you. When we exalt ourselves, when we hold ourselves up in power, the only person we're trying to challenge, and of course there's no real threat to him, is God. The reality is we're all on the same plane before God. So any effort to exalt ourselves above each other is an attempt to climb the throne of God. And that's what Herod is thinking. That's what kings throughout history have thought. We've talked about it many times in different episodes on here. It's what Psalm 2 is about, why the nations are raging and the kings imagining vain things, thinking that they can exalt themselves to the throne of God. But God has chosen his anointed one, and his anointed one came from little Bethlehem, and as a ruler will be a shepherd to his people Israel. The powerful in the Christmas story, in the coming of the Messiah, in the reality of Christianity, are always taken down. This is the nature of them not being God. 
It's not God being petty. I've got to protect my throne. It's God being genuine with who people are. Oh, you seem to have forgotten that you're not God. Let me remind you. And he does a good job of reminding people that they're not God. So this is the first one. Uh, Herod is being replaced. And part of Herod's story is a tell for us that the powerful are always going to be taken down. So that's where we begin with Herod's story. Then verses 7 through 12 give us the magi, the outsiders, these Gentiles who show up. I know there's lots of quibbling, and I don't mean it like it's petty, but the word kind of implies it, doesn't it, Uh, about whether the Magi are actually residual captives from Israel having been taken to foreign lands before, and that's how they have a sense of Israel's history, and blah, blah, blah. And that's fine. I mean, you can have all those discussions. I don't know. But I can tell you this. They're treated in this text completely as Gentiles, completely as outsiders. And most importantly, This is the one story that has no reference to Scripture whatsoever, no reference to Old Testament prophecy, and it's not an accident. There are five clear beginnings and endings to stories. They all end with prophecies except this one, and this one is littered with general revelation, stars in the heavens, and a specific revelation in the form of a dream. Joseph also gets a dream. So it's not like specific revelations outside of Scripture are excluded from Jews. It's not that. But it is that God is speaking to these people who don't have Scripture, or at least it's not referenced in this text whatsoever. So whatever's going on here, it's important and different in some way from what's going on in the rest of the chapter. We'll, and we'll come back to it in the rest of the chapter as well. You'll see why. But in this part of the story up front, we have to notice at least this. So here, here's how we go, starting in verse 7. Then Herod, when he had secretly called the wise men, determined from them what time the star appeared. Now, this is, you know, him. he's found out from his own scholars where Jesus was supposed to be born, Bethlehem. And so he calls those wise men back, and he says, now, when was it the star showed up? Now, of course, all they know is that this is when they started noticing the phenomenon in the heavens, Right. So we started seeing a couple of years ago, you know, or whatever it was. But and, and the assumption is that that's what they say because that's what he does in determining how old the kids are that he's willing to kill in the region around Bethlehem, right? So that's the assumption about it. But whatever it is, he wants to know from them how this star had appeared or when it had shown up or something like that. Verse 8, and he sent them to Bethlehem. Oh, well, you know, they told me it would be in Bethlehem. When you get there, if you don't mind, go and search carefully for the young child when you've found him and bring back word to me so that I can come and worship him also. And when they heard the king, they departed. Now, this sounds like it's just more of Herod's story. It certainly contributes to his story later when it's brought back up. But now he's out of the story in this part. This is just about what the Magi do. And so what they do is they come into a setting where there's a king who says, oh, you know, I'll join you in worshiping the Messiah. So let's go worship the Messiah. So that's what they're wanting to do is worship the Messiah. And when we get to the end of the story, that's what they'll be doing. They'll be worshiping the Messiah, even and then going back to their own country. So as we're reading through this, this is what the Magi do. So they behold, this is what happened, behold, the star which they had seen in the east, when they were in the east, went before them till it came and stood over where the young child was. 
Now, I'm not going to go through all this right now, but I will mention briefly, I, I have a, an idea of what I think that's in reference to in, in terms of Jupiter and Saturn and the conjunction because of what, what it looks like in the sky and, and the fact that it's easily observable and it's distinctive and noticeable and it has, you know, at the point where the conjunction happens, and it's not some weird natural phenomenon, it's just normal. They're orbiting the sun. We see them in a line. Nothing weird happens to our souls or the tidal forces of the earth when it happens. It's just an interesting phenomenon in the sky, and it is profoundly obvious when it happens that these planets come right next to each other. These two brightest objects in the sky come right next to each other, and they actually pause and sort of hesitate for a little while while they're there. And the best I can tell from my astronomy software, if you were in Jerusalem, the point at which they come to stand right next to each other as close as they get is a point where you would look while they're in the eastern part of the sky, you would look at it and go, oh, well, let's go that direction, and it would point you toward Bethlehem. Now, again, that wouldn't mean they could just look straight up in the sky and say, okay, now we're at the cave, so it must be right here. But Bethlehem is not the metroplex. It's not the state of Texas. Uh, It's just a little village. So, you know, if you get to the right village, you're going to find the baby that's somewhere out there in a manger somewhere. And yeah, is there a weird birth that took place? Yeah, you know, I heard some cattle lowing over there. You should go look over there. I don't think it's going to be that hard for them to find the child. Maybe I'm misunderstanding, but I've been there. It seems to me like they would have found the baby if they went to Bethlehem. Anyway, the point is, I, I do think it's, I mean, it's certainly possible God just took something that looked like a star to him and pointed him to I mean, he's given dreams and all kinds of revelation in the chapter. It's fine with me if that's what he does, but I suspect that's what happened. Okay, I said I wasn't going to spend much time on that, but I stayed on it more than I meant to. Anyway, the point is, they, they followed that star. They looked at the star, and they, and they knew what direction to go to find the young child. So when they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceeding great joy. So here they are celebrating the birth of Jesus. This is is the first time this happens in this chapter. And when they came into the house, they saw the young child with Mary's mother. I know it seems weird to us that it's like, well, were they in a house or were they still in the manger? And and I think we just have a misunderstanding of what it is uh, to have a manger in uh, Israel at that time. It's not like you would have a separate barn out back on the 40 acres you own in Bethlehem. Uh, you would have your animals and stuff in what would amount to us a, a separate room from the other parts of the house or in a uh, the way we might think of a garage or something like that. And so coming into the house is not incompatible with saying they're in the same place they were when the baby was born. I don't know, but that's most likely, it seems to me. They're, they're certainly in Bethlehem. So when they'd come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary, his mother. And the only time in this chapter this happens they fell down and worshiped him. This is the only place Jesus is worshiped in this whole chapter. And it's from these outsiders, these people who come from far, having seen a star. And when they find this baby, they know it's time to bend your knees and acknowledge that he is the rightful king. When they'd opened their treasures, they presented gifts to him, gold and frankincense and myrrh. The only people worshiping Jesus in this entire chapter. I'm not saying Joseph and Mary aren't faithful. They're faithful. And Joseph is praised in this chapter. His behavior is meant to be lauded in contrast with Herod's. It's all good, but the only people in this chapter described as 
bending the knee to worship Jesus and giving gifts to him are Gentiles, the the nations coming from outside of Israel are the ones who are worshiping Jesus. And they're rewarded by the Father then being divinely warned in a dream that they should not return to Herod. They departed for their own country another way. I do think it's worth pausing there to say, what a shame if God ever has to say to an outsider, you know, I, I appreciate your humility before me and your desire to worship me but I'm going to need you to leave the place where all my people are so that your worship can be safe. (laughs) That's somewhere we don't want to be. And I think it's a place we're not that far from sometimes. So something to think about separate. Anyway, the point here is (laughs) notice the revelations that come to them in verse nine, the star, which they saw in the East, went before them in verse 10. They saw the star. There is this revelation that's coming to them. And then in verse 12, God gives them a dream so that they'll know to go back to their own country. No prophecy. This is the only one. God is revealing things to them, but not in the scriptures. There's something different going on here. And what's going on different is that they're the nations. It's the same thing Paul talks about in Romans 2. They don't have the law written down on pieces of paper and parchment. And yet, God is speaking to their hearts. He's putting them under conviction. He's letting them know things they wouldn't know otherwise. It's a fairly remarkable account. And the nature of the significance of this account is emphasized by Matthew just a couple of chapters later. And think about where this is in Matthew's account. We're reading about his birth right now, Jesus' birth right now. But just after this, Jesus is going to be baptized at the end of Matthew 3 and then go through the temptation at the beginning of chapter 4. Those are the things that introduce his ministry, right? And so at the very, I mean, the very next thing after the temptation are these words, the very next thing in chapter 4, verse 12. Now, when Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, he departed to Galilee. Now, just hang with me. And leaving Nazareth... So we know at the end of the chapter we're in right now, Matthew 2, that he's going to go settle in Nazareth with his parents and grow up from being a young child to going through puberty and all that stuff and becoming an adult. That's going to happen in Nazareth. So by the time he gets baptized and then so on, he leaves Nazareth and then came and dwelt in Capernaum, where to this day, if you go there, there's a sign on the gate going into Capernaum. It's obviously a touristy thing, but it says, hometown of Jesus. That's that's what you get when you go to Capernaum. So it's pointing out that he went to Capernaum. You're saying, why are you reading this to me? Listen, which is by the sea in the regions. Now we know he's pointing toward this prophecy in the Old Testament, right? Isaiah, which is by the sea. It's Isaiah 9, the opening of Isaiah 9. The Isaiah 9 chapter that leads down to this gift that God is going to give us, the son that'll carry the government on his shoulders and so on which is by the sea in the regions of Zebulun and Naphtali, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah, the prophet, saying, now this is the quotation in Matthew 4. It says that the the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, listen to the emphasis, the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. That's where Jesus chooses to begin his ministry. And you know why it's called that? It's not like in the Galilee there aren't any Jews, but the Galilee is just peppered with Gentiles. The most Gentiles in Israel live in the Galilee. 
it's referred to as Galilee of the Gentiles by Isaiah and then quoted for us in Matthew 4 so that we will know that when Jesus starts his ministry, he wants to be where the most Gentiles are. By way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who sat in darkness have seen a great light, he goes on to quote, and upon those who sat in the region and shadow of death, light has dawned. This at the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, from the author who just told us that a light, a star, shined in the heavens and attracted the wise men, the magi, from these distant, dark lands to come and worship the Messiah. And what does Jesus begin to preach? To all those Gentiles in Galilee, while he's focused on ministry to the kingdom of Israel, what is he preaching to all those Gentiles? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And if, you, and if you carry it forward, I mean, you know how central this message is to the gospel in the New Testament. The whole point is that he's drawing in the outsiders. Uh, in Ephesians 1, uh, 3, this is how he says it. And I'll eliminate all the nesting and parenthetical language that Paul uses. Of course, I would never do that. But Paul does it all the time. And to abbreviate it, I'll read it to you just in the simple form that the sentence would take. He made, this is what Ephesians 1 says. Ephesians 1, which begins with Paul saying, I am the prisoner for the sake of you Gentiles. I am the prisoner of Christ for the sake of you Gentiles. I am suffering on behalf of you Gentiles. He says, he made known to me the mystery that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ through the gospel. This is what the gospel is about bringing in the outsiders. And this is what Matthew points out. So what we've got so far is that we know the powerful are going to be brought down. Herod is the example of that. But now we realize the Magi are showing what the gospel is entirely about, which is taking the outsiders who are in the far-flung parts of the world and bringing them to bow the knee and acknowledge the authority, the rule, the lordship, of Jesus Christ, which is what they do. And they do it because God wants to draw them in. So the powerful are taken down, the outsiders are then brought in. The third part of the story comes in these three narratives that are all told right in a row, three verses apiece, and then the last few verses of the chapter. So the first part of it is Joseph fleeing, right, down to Egypt. So in this third part, we're gonna see people, you know, who are suffering. There's a lot of suffering. So hang with me through the suffering so we can get to the point here. So when the Magi, who had been warned, remember, by God in a dream, don't go back to Herod, just go back another way to your own country. So they go back to their own place. When they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, rise up and take the young child and his mother and flee to Egypt and stay there until I bring you word for Herod will seek the young child to destroy him. So now he's received this dream, and, you know, his response, which is a direct contrast with Herod, Herod responds in fear. Joseph responds completely in faith. And we just read it as if it's a cartoon. I I told you, a lot of times we read the Bible, a few episodes ago I mentioned this, we read the Bible like it's a myth. And therefore, we're comfortable with reading all of it just, you know, in this cartoonish kind of way. Well, of course, Joseph got up. Oh, angel told us we have to leave. Okay, honey, get up. Let's load up the stuff and we'll head to Egypt. Can you think of the trauma 
of having, not, you know, in, in Luke's account, we know that they're in Bethlehem because they've already left their other hometown. And so now they've left the Galilee to come to Bethlehem and they're being told, you need to get up and go again. Now you're not going to have family. You're going to Egypt. And down in Egypt, you'll have to look for the help that you need. I, are you going to have a job? Uh-huh. Are you going to have food? Uh-huh. You're going to be down in Egypt. And Joseph just rises up, takes the young child and his mother by night, and departs for Egypt. That's a lot of faith. And that's what Joseph models throughout this chapter. So when he arose, he took the young child and his mother by night and departed for Egypt. And he was there until the death of Herod, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Ah, Here we are. Second prophecy. This is the third narrative, but the second prophecy. And so it's out of Egypt, I called my son. And this one is also sort of central to the Christmas message, and it's not a surprise to us. Now, we don't pay attention to it as much, this quotation from Hosea 11.1, and it leaves a lot of us confused. You know, what? why on earth would he say that's a reference to the Messiah? Because clearly, and if you read it, this is true, when you go back to Hosea 11, he's describing what happened when he brought Israel out of Egypt. So when Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. That's Hosea 11.1. So why on earth does he apply it to the Messiah? Because everything that's true about Israel is true about the Messiah, and that's the whole point, that he fulfills all of the things that were to be the case about Israel, but he fulfills them truly. So what he goes on with in Hosea 11, by the way, is to say, well, when Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son, and I provided for him, and I did everything, and then he just turned and bit my hand, basically, is what he does, the same thing he brings up in Isaiah 1. So the point is, Jesus does this. You know, he experiences all the things that Israel experiences. He goes to Egypt, and he comes out of Egypt, and he's called and chosen, but he doesn't turn against the Father in the process. So it's not a surprise it'd be a reference to that, but the point is not that. The point here is that God's Son is always like this, always coming from somewhere else, never having a home, and that's always going to be the place with them. And if you think that's just some secondary part of what happened to be the case because Abraham had to leave his home to go to another country and then didn't even inherit it, which is emphasized both in the Old and in the New Testament, or because Israel had to begin as slaves in Egypt before they could come up, or, and I could go through all the litany of stories, Jeremiah going to Egypt and it's just constant. The Elijah having to wander from the brook and down to the, over to the widow of Zarephath and so on. They're always wandering. And when people come to Jesus and say, I want to follow you, how does he warn them? Are you sure you want to follow me? Because you know, even foxes have holes. Birds have nests. But I don't have anywhere I can call home. I don't have anywhere to lay my head. That's the nature of being the people of God, that this is not our home. So when we are the chosen of God, and this is what he's emphasizing in the Christmas story, my son is constantly going to be wandering. You'll see that emphasized again in a moment when we get to the third part of these end stories, when they're coming back to Israel. Because even after Herod dies and they're allowed to come back, they try to go back to where they were going to to begin with. But they realize they shouldn't go into Judea, you know, where they were at Bethlehem. 
They realize they shouldn't do that because Archelaus is reigning in his place, so they'd better grow up to Nazareth. And from there, he's going to go to Capernaum, and from there, from one village to the next, and never have a home until he gets to the city that's going to kill him in this land, as we'll get to in a moment. So first, we have this story of Joseph taking Jesus down to Egypt and reminding us that the Son of God is never going to have a home, and the people of God are the same way. This is not going to be our home. Of course, there'll be an eschaton. Of course, in eternity, we find our home. But in this world, uh, we don't find that home. Okay, next part of the story. Uh, Beginning in verse uh, 16, really. So 16 through 18, these three verses. This concludes Herod's story. Then Herod, when he saw that he was deceived by the wise men, was exceptionally angry. And he sent forth and put to death all the male children, this is the slaughter of the innocents, who were in Bethlehem and in all of its districts from two years old and under, according to the time which he had determined from the wise men. And then was fulfilled what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet, saying, a voice was heard in Ramah. This quotation from Jeremiah 31, the third prophetic reference, the third reference to a direct reference to an Old Testament prophecy in the fourth story, right? So, A voice was heard in Ramah, lamentation, weeping, and great mourning, Rachel, representing Israel, weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted because they are no more. The slaughter of people in Israel during the times when they were besieged by the outside nations, when they were carried away captive and so on. It's Jeremiah's prophecy that that, uh, Matthew is quoting here in Matthew 2 to say, This is what always happens to God's people. And all you have to do is read Jewish history or read Jewish authors to know the language that says a part of being God's people is to suffer. That's the nature of being called to be God's people. God's servants always suffer, and God's son, because he represents everything about God's servants, he suffers. So the Messiah will also suffer. The Messiah, God's people, and that includes us, always suffer. That's what it means to be chosen by God. The final part of the story, the fifth narrative in Matthew 2, the third part of this closing part of the story for us, starts in verse 19, goes to the end. So when Herod was dead, so he's gone, we're not dealing with him anymore. Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Arise and take the young child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel. For those who sought the young child's life are dead. Ah, it's all over. We can rest at ease. No problem. No more suffering, right? It's never going to be like that. So he arose, took the young child and his mother, and came into the land of Israel. But, and we could have broken this out into another narrative, but it's so small. We'll just make it part of the new equilibrium, the new way things are by the time we get to the end of the chapter. When he heard that Archelaus, so we started with Herod reigning, now we have Archelaus reigning over Judea instead of his father, Herod, Joseph was afraid to go there. By the way, that's residual. There's never going to be a home for Jesus in this world, and we're supposed to be followers of Jesus. So anyway, reigning, so when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea instead of his father, Herod, he was afraid to go there, and being warned by God in a dream, he turned aside into the region of Galilee, and he came and dwelt in a city called Nazareth that it might be fulfilled, and this is just gonna, this just makes Old Testament, I mean, it makes scholars of Scripture apoplectic, that, he might be, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophets, he shall be called a Nazarene. That's, there is no Old Testament prophecy that says that. That's really frustrating. 
So we work at finding it. I've worked at finding it. Uh, we can make it work. Uh, you know, you look it up Isaiah 11 and you go, oh, well, it's the root and branch of Jesse because a branch is a Nazar, something that sounds just like this. And, and he's referring to it being small and maybe that works and maybe it does. Yeah, maybe that's all he has reference to. Or maybe it's, well, he's going to take a Nazarite vow. He's going to be like a Nazarite, like John the Baptist was, which is not exactly true about Jesus, but still might be similar enough that he's saying he's going to be a Nazarite. And maybe the words are similar enough that he's a Nazarite. He's living in Nazareth. Well, that counts. We'll just say he's a Nazarite because he lived in Nazareth. And there may be something to that. I really am not critical of those. I mean, people try to resolve it in a bunch of ways. Seems a lot simpler than that to me. I don't know how to resolve all those things, but I can tell you this. In all the other statements, in all three other prophetic references in Matthew 2, he says, the prophet, Jeremiah, the prophet. The Lord spoke through the prophet, saying, out of Egypt, I called my son. As he spoke in the prophet Micah and said, and he quotes Micah 5.2. There's a direct quotation, and it's the prophet. But here, it's to fulfill what was spoken by the prophets. He shall be called a Nazarene. It's not a, a specific passage that's being referred to. It's this generic understanding that the Messiah is going to be someone who is chosen. I mean, he's called, he's set apart by God, he's going to fulfill these things, that it means to be the Son of God, to be called and chosen by God, but he's also going to be rejected, which is what it means to be a Nazarene. And we don't have to read that into the text. We know what it's like to be from Nazareth. We know what people think when someone's from Nazareth. When Philip has found the Messiah in John 1 and goes to his brother or goes to his friend Nathaniel and says, oh, we think we found the Messiah. We, we, it's, it's this Jesus from Nazareth. What's Nathaniel's response? Wait, Jesus from where? <laughs> you think the Messiah is going to come from Nazareth? Can any good thing come from Nazareth? He's not making up a saying. He's giving the utterance they would have had naturally in response to Nazareth. He came from what dump of a town? Nobody important could come from that place. That's the point. That Jesus is going to be rejected and despised. We know this from Isaiah 53. We know it from all the descriptions of the Messiah that are given and all the models of the Messiah in the Old Testament, all the prophets, the judges, everybody else who fulfills the role. They're not prominent people who are in high and powerful positions. They are the lowly and despised who are, despite all of that, chosen by God. It's the nature of marrying together, being chosen by God, but being rejected by the very people God has sent us to serve. And so however else you do it, the putting together of those two ideas seems obviously to me to be the point of the statement, he shall be called a Nazarene. He's going to be identified as somebody who came from that. And that's how people identify him to this day. I mean, people in the region, when they want to be identified as Christians, they use the N from Nazareth, right? That's the, the letter that they say, oh, this makes us followers of Jesus. We're not ashamed to be identified with his shame. It's the idea that goes with it. So being chosen by God means we don't have a home here. It means we suffer. And the result of all of that is that we end up being the kind of people God can use to accomplish what he wants to do, which is attract those outsiders, the Gentiles, the nations, the multitudes, to come to him. We are, when we're followers of God, lowly because we're homeless, lowly because we're suffering but chosen and used 
because we're lowly in order to bring in those who are outside. Herod's greatest hope is misplaced in retaining his power and, you know, look at me and see how successful I've been. That's an impossible place from which to attract people toward God because attracting people toward power and wealth and comfort and success and all of the things that the world has to offer is the opposite of attracting people to the difference of God, the thing that sets him apart as the only one who is above the rest of us. We all want to find a celebrity. We want to find someone successful and say, oh, I want to be like that. God wants us to find him and say, I want you to start being like me. You say, well, that's pretty magnificent. Actually, it's pretty humble because he sent his own son into the world to redeem those who needed him. Jesus' sacrifice is the opposite of what Herod is doing. Jesus gives up his home. Herod is trying to keep his. Jesus adopts suffering. Herod is trying to avoid it. Everything that's happening here, through the model of Joseph, by the way, in his obedience, is to say that God is looking for people who will be more like his son in order to attract the nations to come to him, which they did when the Magi came and worshiped him. So here's here's the thing I hope we will take home from having read this chapter today together that I hope would also put some conviction in us about how we live our Christian lives, that it is impossible for us to love outsiders the same way God does. Because look at the price he pays for those magi to be able to come and kneel down in Bethlehem. He takes on not just the faux presence of a human being. He takes on the nature of humanity. He becomes a man to live among us. And and the meaning of that, which is demonstrated, modeled in his baptism, but finally fulfilled only when he descends all the way into the pit of death at the crucifixion. The meaning of that is that he's willing to pay any price to be able to bring in those outsiders. It would be impossible for us to love outsiders the way God does and not be willing to lose everything. And look what it means here, the home, comfort. For us to be followers of Jesus doesn't mean us handing over the deed to our house to someone who requires it in order for us to be a member of their church. It doesn't mean that. But it means your home belongs to God instead of you. It means your life belongs to God instead of you. It's what Jesus says. Oh, you sure you want to follow me? The Son of Man doesn't have a home. If you want to follow me, that's what it means. Oh, you want to follow me? Well, now are you sure about that? Because unless you die to yourself, unless you turn away from the things you want and then get, carry your cross daily, then you'll never really be my follower. So for us to become genuine followers of this Christmas story would be for us to become the kind of people who are willing to give up anything in order to bring in those who are outside. Thanks for joining us for Coffee with Creamer. Your cup of coffee may be finished, but we are not. Come back next week for a refill as we sit down to examine a new set of ideas and cultural issues. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts or visit our website at barrycreamer.com. Until next time, keep your mug hot and your mind sharp.